Morning, everyone. How are we all? Good. Thanks. Rousing. So um, I was doing a bit of research during the week. Do you know that uh, there are 7.7 .7 billion people on our planet at the moment? 7.7 .7 billion people. Now, the year I was born, that's um, 1959, there were less than 3 billion people on the planet, which means we've had a 150% increase in 60 years. And in the last 12 years, the population has grown by 15%. Now, if we had another 60 years, another 150% uh, growth, there'd be 20 people, uh, 20 billion people living on the planet. It's a lot of people in the world, don't you think? In fact, I try to get my head around that number of people in the world. But I have a question for you and I want you to huddle up with just one person next to you and have a conversation about this. There are so many people in the world, so I wonder, how do you know you've found the one? 20, you know, what, 7.7 .7 billion people in the world you could choose from? How do you know when you found the one? Off you go. Have a chat about it. What are you looking for? You know, how do you know? How do you know when you found the one? Right, there's an awful lot of laughing going on out there, so I'm assuming this is quite an uh, interesting thing for you to think around. Right, can I draw you back for a minute? Okay, just a couple. Sing out, sing out nice and loud. Nice and loud. How do you know you found the one amongst this 7.7 .7 billion people that you could choose somebody from. How do you know you've found the one? Sing it out. <laughs> right. Okay. That's a good start. Yep. I know. Some people have had that. Yes. Carl, go. Sorry? Because God arranged it. Not right now, but I'll take you at the start there. Another day we'll get that story. Yes, Sarah. Oh, I agree with you. I agree. But, you know, but there are people that you wouldn't choose. Go on. Oh, Sarah said, you make that person the one. There's not just one person in the world for you, but you choose that person. I agree. And that means, of course, there are people you would not choose. Yep. For a pile of reasons. All right. Okay. Uh, so um, it's interesting, isn't it, to think about how do you choose the one out of all that? Uh, for mine, it would be something like this. There's a bit of attraction. Pulse beats a little bit quicker. You want to be with them. And you wake when you're not with them. And it goes a bit like that. The other night, Deborah and I were out for dinner with a couple of friends of ours and they're in their 70s. And the wife has got Parkinson's. Uh, and watching the tender, loving way this husband ministered to his wife up steps into a little concert and helping her down the steps. And I knew she was the one, you know. He found the one. Now, let me go a bit step further. In a world of shifting ideas where data is exploding at incredible speed, let me just give you some statistics about data. My first computer I bought in 1992 was a 386SX. Who remembers those? Uh, you still got a 386XX. <laughs> you dreamed of it, did you? Uh, mine had a whopping 40 megabytes of hard drive memory. 
Whoa. And I often thought, who's going to need all that? Well, it didn't take long before we ended up with gigabytes of data. That's 1,000 megabytes. So megabyte is a million bits of information. And then it's not long before we discovered we needed terabytes. That's 1,000 gigabytes. And now there's petabytes. There's 1,000 terabytes. And that's not enough. There are exobytes, 1,000 petabytes. And I've just discovered there are now zettabytes, 1,000 exobytes of data in this data-obsessed world. Someone said that if you had as much data as has been created by the planet and you put them on, on, uh, on CDs, you know, on discs, it would circle the planet 222 times if you stacked them all up. That much data. So I wonder, could you have a chat for a minute? I wonder, in this world filled with information, when do you know you've found the truth? When do you know you've found the truth? Have a chat. Where you go. How do you know you found the truth that changes everything? Okay, let's come back a bit and let's have some people sing out. How do you, how do you know you found the truth? In all this world with all this data, with all sorts of ways, David, how do you know? You ask Siri. Siri tells you you found the truth. Oh, no, I've asked Siri some things and it steered me up a garden path many a time. Absolutely. How do you know you found the truth? That's, see, in this world, don't you think in this world people are so longing for truth but nobody knows where to look anymore because every time you turn around there's a new truth and there are people who passionately believe it until the next new truth comes along and then they passionately believe that. Say? What was that answer? Oh, yes, uh, maybe so, yes. Could be. How do you know you found that truth, though, that changes everything? That's so captivating, that truth is so captivating you can't ignore it, that you just knew that nothing would be the same again when you discovered this. Well, last week, uh, Travis had us reflect on the Apostle Paul's incredible journey to faith, how he found his gaze averted uh, from himself and anyone else, he no longer cared what people thought about him. Uh, he no longer thought about himself in the way that he did before because he'd found Jesus, the one. And how his whole frame of reference was shifted for what was truth now. Previously, he thought he had uh, inside running on the truth, but he discovered a truth that he could not, he could not deny. He could no longer manage his world the way he did before because of this truth that came his way, this truth that smashed his life with his encounter with Jesus. In his testimony, he tells his testimony a few times, but it came out of a completely life-changing encounter. And I wonder if this had happened to you, whether you would, whether you would discover that you might have found the one, whether you've discovered a truth that would change your life. Listen to his story. Here's how he talks about it. Here's how it's recorded in Acts 9, 1-9, which I'm sure is him sort of retelling it back. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples because he knew the truth. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found there any who belonged to the way, the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem 
And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What a gripping encounter. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. What a lovely kind of image, uh, a description that is of a person who thought he saw everything so clearly before and now sees nothing. So they led him by his hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This changed everything. He found the one. He found truth. And this is how he describes what this meant for him when we're in Philippians 3. He's writing, you know, to his uh, church there, to his friends in Philippi and telling them what this meant. But whatever he said were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He says, check this out. This is what his life has become because of this unbelievable encounter with the one, with this truth that changed everything. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want to know Christ. So for Paul, having found the one, he set aside everything to pursue Jesus. Now I don't know if you were paying much attention to the words of the last two songs we sang, but I was sitting there reading those words and I was thinking that's exactly the sentiment in those songs, which we sing so easily because they've got such a lovely catchy tune. It just kind of rolls off our tongue. But I wonder whether we really understand what it means to set aside everything for the pursuit of Jesus. Not church, not religion, not interesting spiritual ideas, but to set aside everything to pursue Jesus. Having discovered the truth, and this is what he discovered as the truth, that trying to be righteous without God is futile nonsense, only faith in Jesus can bring you lasting forgiveness, peace, hope and eternal life. That's what Paul discovered to be the truth. He then set out to pursue it and the one who had brought this truth to his life as the first passion of his life. Everything revolved around this pursuit of the one and the pursuit of this truth. 
Now we're all passionate about something. All of us have got a passion for something or other. Boy, I'm hearing a lot about park run these days. Seems like everybody's doing a park run. So I said to Owen yesterday, how many people are doing park run? I'm hearing so much about it. He said, oh, probably 40 today. And I go, okay, well, they're died in the wool hard nut park runners, aren't they, really? Because it was a pretty miserable day yesterday. But he said, you know, on a good day, 120, but it's a global phenomenon's taken off. People are passionate about park running, running in the park. Doesn't do it for me. There are people who are passionate about cricket. They love their cricket. Like they just eat, sleep, drink cricket. This week we heard the story of Glenn Maxwell who's had to take a break from cricket because maybe he's overdosed on cricket. He's been so passionate about this game. He can no longer find the passion for it. There are people who are passionate about footy. This morning I got sent an email from, uh, about Trent, Co- Trent Cochin, who's the, the Richmond captain. And in it he talks about how at the end of 2016 he just lost all passion. He lost all passion for the game. He, just, he was lost completely. He couldn't understand where he was. We can find things that we're passionate about and then, and then we can lose our passion. People have got passion for their favourite TV shows. Maybe you've got a new squeeze. That's your passion. Or maybe you've still got a passion for your old squeeze. A squeeze? That's your sweetheart. Have you got a squeeze? He's about to give you a squeeze. Yeah, but we are, aren't we? Everybody's got a passion for something or other. We all have things in our life that we would uh, that, that that we would not give up, that we wouldn't miss, that we would prioritise because they matter to us. But would we do that for the pursuit of a relationship with Jesus? Not to know about Jesus like a history lesson, but to know Jesus deeply and personally. Would we? give up anything or everything for that in the light of the truth we have received that's what paul speaks to here and in this passage we're about to read uh, from uh, verse 12 of chapter 3 in philippians he describes three actions that came as a result of him finding the one finding this truth here's the first thing he says he says because of this he says he presses on to take hold presses on to take hold. He says, not that I've already attained all this. He's just glorying in what God has done for him and what is possible and what is before him. He says, not that I've already got it all, he says, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, there are two proactive ideas in this idea of pressing on to take hold. First one is, persevering, pursue, pursue. I, I, I like the idea of pursuit. You know, it's like so, something's in front of you and you just chase and you, and, and you don't give up. You stick at it. He says, press on, press on. Don't stop, don't sit down, don't fall back, press on. And the second of these proactive ideas is to get a better grip, to get a stronger grip. I press on to take hold. Actually, if you think about it, this is actually an image from the games. It's the relay image. Who's ever been in one of those relays, those annoying relays? You know the old children's relay where you run up and you grab it and they run back? 
Who likes the 400 metres type of relay where you run and the person runs away from you? With the stick in their hand and you've got to try and press on and, and grasp this stick. You're the person in front and the person behind you has lost their energy to run and you have to almost stop. You want the person leading up to you to press on so you get a better grasp. And it doesn't come easy. That's the thing. People look at this and go, you know, first moment where it becomes difficult to be a, a follower of Jesus and they fold up and you go, it's too hard. But I want to tell you, nothing worthwhile comes easy. Nothing worthwhile ever comes easy. And this world teaches us that everything should come easy. And so we stop doing anything that doesn't come easy. It requires exertion for us to press on to take hold of Jesus. And he says, he says his brothers and sisters, he says, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The pursuit doesn't finish until the goal is achieved and the goal is to be completely in Christ. To strip away all those things that belong to his old life that I guess regularly, in fact I read in his letters sometimes I'm thinking there were times when those things that were part of his former life, you can see they just creep up on him and they take him again. That he presses on because he wants to be completely in Christ. Now, for those who think this is Paul saying, you know, you have to work your way to salvation, you have to strive your way to peace. He's not saying that at all. He's already found that in Christ. He wants all of it. Not just a moment of it, not just a bit of it, not just a, uh, a bit of salt on his life. He wants to be completely, totally in Christ. That's love. He says, I pressed on to take hold of that for which Christ has already took hold of me. Now he wants to experience everything in Christ. That's what this does when you find the one, when you find that truth. He says, secondly, we need to live up to the truth we have found. These, these are verbs, to live up to the truth we have found. He says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things and if on some point you think differently... That too, God will make clear to you. Only, he says, let us live up to what we have already obtained. So we've discovered Jesus, so what? Many years ago, in our youth ministry in the Bendigo Salvos, we had a whole pile of kids who came on a Sunday night and they were wild boys. Oh, they were rugged. But I remember that at, on, on one occasion there, over a period of weeks, they sat down and they got involved and they started exploring the gospel and at the end of it all, we asked them, you know, whether they wanted to follow Jesus. And they all put their hand up and they prayed the, the prayer. And, 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 and we just felt so, so gloriously kind of like, I don't know, just so blessed. Two days later, we got a call from the police. Yep, breaking and entering. The very same boys. Very same boys who had just two days before said, I, I want Jesus in my life. Two days later breaking and entering how had they come to break and enter well one of them had got some stuff and he wouldn't hand it back and the other boys decided they'd just go and get it themselves they'd just 
um, you know, break into his house and take the stuff that was they thought was theirs. And the police got called, we got called, and sort all out. But what I'm saying is there was a huge gap between their knowledge of Christ, their confession of faith and their living. And we, rem- we realised we had some work still to do. Now, when I read the scripture, I see that God forgiving us and renewing us is for a reason. It's not so that we can have a happy time only, although we should be, you know, fulfilled and enriched and full of joy. But actually, the reason why we are forgiven and renewed is so that we can take up our vocation, which has been stripped from us by the fall. To take up our vocation, which is to glorify God, to bring glory to God, to be, if you like, an expression of his love in the world so that the world will know who he is through his people. And we express that by doing good. Galatians 6 and 9, we read these words. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You see that perseverance theme again. But it seems to me, as I kind of reflect on this, that for many believers, they're translating doing good into doing no harm. I had this conversation last week with a couple of people. We were talking about this. But it occurs to me that that doing good has kind of become do no harm. And there's a world of difference between those two ideas. They can look the same, but they're not the same at all. There's a world of difference. Because it's the difference between being active and being passive. Just being there or committing to stepping in. There's a difference between being committed or being a non-committed kind of person. To live up to the truth we have found, this truth that changes everything, means to pattern our lives on Jesus, who is the way, the truth and the life. And what did Jesus do? He came and he gave his life. He willingly laid his life down. That's the words we use. We know the scripture says no one took his life from him. He says no one takes my life. I willingly lay it down. Doing good, the best good in the world. The best good the world ever knew, which is why we call it good news. The good news of Jesus. And this is Paul speaking this, living up to the truth he found. He says this, this is living up to it. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, he says, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, to participate in his sufferings. Didn't you hear him? Saying, I know what Jesus did for me. I know what Jesus, I know how Jesus paid a price for me. I know that Jesus laid his life down for me. He says, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's an active statement. That's a do-good statement, not a do-no-harm statement. And there's a third thing that he, he says... 
has happened for him, but he's actually encouraging us all in this statement. He says, fasten your eyes on good examples. If you're kind of a bit shaky, a bit wavery, a little bit, you know, prone to being lost from time to time, can't quite figure out in this junk of zettabytes data what's truth anymore. He says, fasten your eyes on good examples who will hold you tight and hold you strong in this pursuit of the one. He says, join together in, in, in following my example, brothers and sisters. He says, to those who are watching, he says, watch my example. I'll try and show you what it's like. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Follow their example because there's strength in numbers. I had a conversation with somebody during the week. I have this conversation pretty well about every three weeks. The person says, oh, life's just going really hard. And I say, how are you doing with fellowship? How are you doing with community, Christian community? Oh, I just haven't had the time. You're getting picked off by a world around you chock full of ideas, junk ideas. You know, I said to somebody the other day why being a Christian and being in Christian community is important to me because everybody's fearful that I'm going to tell them to go to church. Everybody I meet, I'm sure they just think I'm just going to say, why aren't you going to church? Well, I, I talk about why it's important for me to be in a Christian community because I need to be in this story of grace and forgiveness from Jesus all the time because when I step out of that story with my head, I become something I don't want to become. I lose my way. I need other brothers and sisters around me because from time to time I get discouraged and I find that they bring me encouragement. And I'd like to think that when they're feeling discouraged, I might bring encouragement to them. I know I need you. Do you know that I need you? I need you. Some of you, I fasten my eyes on your example. You are an example to me. And I am so pleased that you're in my life. Now, at the heart of all this, really, this thing that Paul's trying to say, at the heart of this is the difference between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ. Really knowing him. You know, making this a, a pursuit of absolute love. We, we use a word in Christian faith called devotion. You know, we talk about devotions. I think we've boiled it down to having a 20-minute conversation, reading from the Bible, a conversation and a prayer in the morning. But devotion, you know what that really means? It means you absolutely nothing, nothing will prevent you from following this through. You're devoted to it. This is what Paul says, I say again to you. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I want to tell you this is no intellectual trip. This is no dispassionate research project he's on. This is no study to get a qualification which might have a bit of religious stuff in it as well. This for him is a headlong immersion into Jesus. Absolutely like there's a big pool in front of him and he's just diving in. 
No stepping up and tipping his water and toe in, thinking, oh, I was a bit cold, I don't think, today. Just in. Everything. A complete and total burn the ships commitment to Jesus as the one, as the truth. And I want to know, just want to ask you, I don't want to know actually, I think the Lord would ask this question of you. Are you in that space? Are you on a burn the ship? A burn the ship kind of like journey with Jesus? That's, that idea of burning the ships comes from uh, a famous Spanish explorer who arrived in a destination navigating the world and they were to plant a new, a new colony. And when he got there, his sailors, they were homesick. They wanted to go back to the old ideas. They wanted to find another one. And he issued the order, burn the ships. No going home. No going back. Are you in that kind of journey? Is Jesus in that? Is this what Jesus is for you? Because we sang about it. I do hope that you kind of take note of what you sing. Because what you sing is what your heart's actually saying. It's not for me to ask you that question so I can find an answer. It's for me to pose that question so that you can be honest in your own journey. I want to leave that question with you. Is that your journey? Have you found the one? Have you found the truth that changes everything? You take that to Jesus and have a conversation with him about that. Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, the whole of our universe pivots on who you are. Nothing came into this world without you. The scripture clearly says that you created everything, that you are the Lord of all things, that at the end of the age every knee will bow and every tongue will confess who you are, whether they want to do that now or not. And we recognise that when we read Paul's journey and we hear his testimony, how life-changing it was for him to meet you. I pray that today, my friends gathered here today will have a life-changing encounter with you. Not just an encounter with you that's like a dry, dusty history story or research project or that it'll actually be life-changing. It will, it will set the heart racing. It will make us not want to be with anybody else. It will make us long for you. And I pray that you'll do that so that we would experience everything you want to give us, not just momentary, but for eternity. I pray. Amen.